You're listening to Deeper Music, a podcast about classical music. I'm David Kahn, a composer and saxophonist living in San Diego. The fugue is one of the oldest genres in classical music, as it is about as old as polyphony itself. The earliest known use of the word fugue dates back to 1330, where it was used to describe a piece of music that used imitative counterpoint. Since the word fugue comes from the Latin words fugere, which means to flee, and fugare, which means to chase, it became a common way to refer to imitative music. Imitation in music is when a melodic line copies either a part or all of a melodic line that came before it. Imitation was very popular from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, and composers seemed to enjoy creating new ways to reuse the same melodic materials. As an example, here's the credo from Palestrina's Misa Ave Regina Colorum, published in 1599. Imitation like this was the bread and butter of composition at the time. I think the reason imitation was so popular, especially in sacred music, was that composers wanted to create lots of music from just a little bit of text, which is what they had to do for their masses. Using imitation helps create a continuous stream of music that doesn't lose focus of the core meaning of the text. One important form of imitative music that came from this period is the canon, where an entire melody is made to imitate with itself, with a spacing of one or two measures. One canon that everybody knows is the song Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Canons have never been especially popular, as they're very difficult to write, and often not very interesting. But there are a number of good canons in classical music. My favorite canon comes from the last movement of César Franck's Violin Sonata, written in 1886. Fugue as we know it today was developed in the Baroque era by composers like Hirolamo Frescobaldi, Dietrich Buxtehude, George Friedrich Handel, and of course, of course, Johann Sebastian Bach. So, here's how to write a fugue. Step 1. Start with a melody in a single voice. This is called the subject. Step 2. Once the melody is finished, introduce a second voice with the same melody, though starting on a different note. 
The first voice continues with free counterpoint. If you want to reuse this counter melody, you can call it the counter subject. Step 3. Repeat step 2 for all remaining voices, reusing the counter subject if desired. Step four. Uh, wait, where's step four? Did I forget to write it down? Hold on, let me try to find it. Um, where is it? Oh. Oh, okay. Um, I guess there is no step four. So unfortunately, you're going to have to decide what happens next. Yes, despite the vast number of fugues that have been written, there seems to be no hard rules about how to write a fugue. After the formal beginning, the composer is free to add new ideas, take ideas away, develop ideas, combine ideas together, and whatever the heck he or she wants until the piece is over. Of course, there's no inherent reason for a fugue to end. Someone could theoretically write a fugue that lasts forever. All of this brings us to an important concept. Fugue is not a form. There may be an expected beginning for a fugue, but there's no set pattern for its middle or end. There is no requirement for the fugue to have a dramatic arc, though many fugues have one. There is no requirement for the fugue to be tonal, though many fugues are. And there is no requirement to fulfill some abstract notion of completeness, such as exhausting all the permutations of subject and countersubject. Fugal writing is a process, a technique, not a form. Any fugue that wants to be a standalone piece will often have a form, usually some form of dramatic arc coupled with a modulation and return to the home key. But fugues do not need these things. Fugues are entirely built on contrapuntal techniques, such as imitation, inversion, augmentation, diminution, and stretto. Thus, a fugue's only requirement is that it's imitative and contrapuntal. Let's examine one of Bach's fugues in detail. We heard a little bit of Bach's Little Fugue in G minor, BWV 578. Let's examine this one. The fugue starts with a subject in the soprano voice. This subject happens to start on the note G. The alto voice then enters with the subject, but transposed down a fourth so that it starts on the note D. Meanwhile, the soprano plays the countersubject. After this, there's a space of one and a half measures before the next voice enters with the subject. During this one and a half measures, 
the soprano and alto voices develop some of the ideas heard in the subject and countersubject. Then the tenor voice enters with the subject, starting back on G, and the alto starts and the alto starts to play the countersubject. The countersubject is transferred to the soprano voice in the next measure, and then the two upper voices alternate playing the last few measures of the countersubject. Details like this are very subtle, so don't worry if you can't hear it. I only know about this interplay because it's clearly marked in the score. The bass voice enters now, with the subject starting on D. The tenor voice plays the counter subject, the alto voice drops out, and the soprano gets to play a nice trill on a high A. At this point, we've introduced the subject in all four voices, so what happens next is completely up to the composer. In this fugue, we get what is known as an episode, which is where earlier materials of music are cut up and recycled, usually along to some harmonic sequence. Episodes usually last just a few measures, just so they're not too distracting. This one happens to be three measures long. What happens next is very sneaky. The tenor starts to play the subject, while the soprano plays material related to the countersubject. In the very next measure, though, the subject in the tenor devolves into running sixteenth notes. The soprano, halfway through the measure, decides that it should play the subject, and the tenor agrees that it should be the countersubject. This is known as a false start, when a voice starts to enter with the subject, but then immediately gives up. This example is a bit more subtle, though, in that not only do the tenor and soprano start the subject over, they also swap roles in the middle of the measure. The bass voice also comes in with a strangely timed cadential figure and ending on a long D. We then get another short episode, with the bass making steps downward to modulate to a new key. We're now in B-flat major, the relative major of G minor. The alto voice gets the subject, but quickly trades it off to the tenor voice, and the soprano has the counter subject throughout. We then get another episode. This passage happens to be a good example of invertible counterpoint, which is when two voices sound good together, no matter which one is on top. Then we get the subject in the bass and the counter subject in the soprano. The alto voice directly harmonizes with the soprano, so they sound like they're together. A few measures later, the soprano decides to trill on a high F 
while the alto voice continues her harmonized countersubject. Here's another episode, the longest one yet. This helps us modulate to a new key. Now we're in C minor. The soprano has the subject and the alto has the counter subject. The alto seems to have a hard time holding on to things, so she gives the counter subject to the bass voice. We then have the last, and longest, episode. This episode helps modulate to the home key and prepare the climax of the piece, which is the last entrance of the theme. To do this, it introduces some seemingly new ideas that are a bit more vigorous than the ideas used so far. Finally, we have the last statement of the subject in the bass and the counter subject in the soprano. The inner voices give harmonic support to close the piece out. It's clear that, even in a fugue as simple and straightforward as this little fugue, there are a lot of subtleties that make it interesting. Of course, there are lots of ways to make it more interesting. One aspect of fugues that directly correlates to complexity is how many voices it has. Most fugues have three or four voices, but Bach wrote several five-voice fugues, and even a six-voice fugue. Composers can also add multiple subjects to a fugue, either introducing them straight away with the first subject or later in the piece. Beyond these two specifications, there are countless ways to relate different voices to each other and to develop melodic ideas. Part of what makes Bach's music so great is that he was so comfortable with trying new things, and every single one of his pieces shows an inventiveness that not many composers have ever had. Let's check out some of the famous fugues in music history. One of the earliest composers to use fugues that is still popular today is George Frederick Handel, who put fugues in many of his oratorios. His Messiah, written in 1741, which is known for its famous Hallelujah Chorus, ends with a fugue on the single word Amen.
J.S. Bach, who will forever be the greatest composer of fugues, wrote what is now known as the Old Testament of Keyboard Music, The Well-Tempered Clavier, in 1722. This is a collection of 24 preludes and fugues, one in each major and minor key, to celebrate the invention of equal temperament, which is how pianos have been tuned ever since. This collection features well-known pieces, like the prelude in C major, and the fugue in C minor. This fugue is actually very similar to the little fugue in G minor. It's pretty straightforward, but it has its own little quirks. This collection also has an example of a rare two-voice fugue, which sounds like this. One of my favorite fugues is the fugue in C-sharp minor, which is a triple fugue in five voices. The first subject is very ominous. Soon after the subject is introduced in all five voices, the fugue introduces the second subject, which is characterized by running eighth notes. Note that the lower voices are playing the first subject as accompaniment. A little while later, the third subject is introduced in an inner voice, almost in a subdued way. This subject quickly gains prominence, though, and it is heard almost incessantly throughout the rest of the fugue. With these three subjects, Bach has a lot of material to work with. As a result, this fugue has no countersubjects and no episodes. Even with five voices, there's no room for fluff. 
Towards the end of the fugue, the rhythms slow down, and the second subject is dropped entirely in favor of the first and third subjects, though the third is obviously taking prominence. If you are somehow not impressed by this incredible collection of 24 preludes and fugues, then you might be surprised with the fact that Bach wrote a second well-tempered clavier. Volume 2, written 20 years after the first volume, follows the same format as the first, 24 preludes and fugues, one in each major and minor key. None of these pieces are particularly famous, but they're just as good as those in the first volume. Bach's last great contribution to the art of fugue was his Art of Fugue in which Bach tried to systematically lay out his techniques for writing fugues. To do this, he wrote 14 fugues, each more complex than the last, that used the same theme as its subject. Unfortunately, Bach died before he was able to finish this, leaving us with the most heartbreaking moment in all of music. In the classical era, fugues were already considered old-fashioned, though the most notable composers found copies of the well-tempered clavier and were thus inspired by Bach's fugue writing. Haydn, for instance, wrote fugues as the finales of some of his string quartets, like those in his Opus 20. These fugues are interesting in that they're quiet for nearly their entire duration until the climax, which is suddenly loud. Here's an example, the last movement of his quartet Opus 20, number 5, written in 1772. Haydn was also inspired by Handel after a visit to London, and wrote fugues in his later oratorios, as well as some late symphonies. Mozart was greatly inspired by Bach's work, though he was reluctant to write fugues of his own. The last movement of his 41st symphony, nicknamed Jupiter, 
is a contrapuntal tour de force that contains fugal writing, but is not technically a fugue. Curie of his Requiem definitely is a fugue, though. In fact, it's a double fugue, and both subjects are introduced right at the beginning. Beethoven was a much more prolific writer of fugues, and he incorporated them into many of his piano sonatas and symphonies. His three greatest fugues, though, are the last movement of the Hammerklavier Sonata, the first movement of his Opus 131 String Quartet, and his Opus 133 Grosse Fuga. The last movement of the Hammerklavier starts with a long introduction, and then starts an incredibly difficult fugue that lasts the entire rest of the movement, a sheer ten minutes of contrapuntal music. Beethoven was one of the first, and only, composers to stretch a fugue out to this scale. The first movement of his string quartet, Opus 131, isn't quite as ambitious, but is instead known for its emotional depth. Thank you. 
Beethoven's Grosse Fuga probably takes the title for biggest and baddest fugue ever written. It was originally written as the last movement of his string quartet, Opus 130, but nobody liked it, so he had to change the ending and republish the fugue as a separate piece. The Grosse Fuga is a huge 14-minute fugue that is highly dissonant and extraordinarily difficult to play. Its form is impossible to properly describe, and its counterpoint is dense and complex. It's a piece that Stravinsky said will be contemporary forever. Fugues were not popular in the Romantic era. While some composers were happy to write traditional fugues, such as Mendelssohn, most other composers were not terribly interested. Those that did write fugues, such as Liszt, Mahler, and Bruckner, were more interested in seeing how a fugue could function within a larger form, such as sonata form. As an example, let's look at the last movement of Bruckner's Fifth Symphony. After a slow introduction, we arrive at the primary theme of a large sonata form. This theme is immediately treated as a fugue, and it fugues its way all the way up to the secondary theme. Later on, the development starts with a fugue on a theme heard at the end of the exposition.
soon after, the primary theme starts to join in, and we get a double fugue with these two themes that last almost the rest of the development. These two themes are combined one last time at the beginning of the recapitulation in a celebratory manner. So in this way, Bruckner uses the fugue as a transformative agent, adding tension and drive to the music within a sonata form. Fugues became a bit more popular in the 20th century as composers looked towards the past for their inspiration. One good example of a modern fugue is the first movement of Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta, written in 1936. This movement is a slow, atonal fugue that uses Bartok's ideas of pitch symmetry as a structural device. Much of the opening is centered around the note A, but as the fugue goes on, the voices drift apart until they reach their furthest point, E-flat, which is a tritone away from A. This arrival at E-flat is the climax of the piece. Pierre Boulez called this fugue probably the most timeless of all Bartok's works. Stravinsky also included fugues in some of his pieces, typically his neoclassic ones. Here's an example from the second movement of his Symphony of Psalms.
Perhaps the most prolific composer of fugues in the 20th century was Dmitry Shostakovich. In 1952, he published 24 Preludes and Fugues as an obvious homage to the well-tempered clavier. These pieces are highly regarded, not just because they're inspired by Bach, but because they're interesting in their own way. There are many beautiful pieces in this collection, such as this chipper fugue in D major. Perhaps the most extraordinary fugue in this collection is the fugue in A major. This fugue is famous not for its complexity, but for its simplicity and its expression of pure unironic joy, which is a rare thing to find in Shostakovich's music. Romanian composer Georgi Ligeti wrote a very interesting five-voice double fugue for the Curie of his Requiem, written in 1963. Ligeti was fond of tonal clusters, and in this fugue he splits each voice part into several vocal parts and gives each part a slightly different chromatic line. Ligeti delicately constructs these lines so that nothing overlaps, which creates an eerie buzzing sound for each voice of the fugue. Ligeti called this kind of writing micro-polyphony.
Perhaps the most famous fugue to come out of the 20th century is the finale of Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, written in 1946. This piece is a theme and variations on a theme by Henry Purcell that highlights all the different sections of an orchestra. The finale is a dazzling fugue with a stunning example of what's known as augmentation, when a melody appears at a larger timescale than the rest of the music. Don't worry, you'll know when it happens. are inherently difficult to understand. Some of the most complex processes in music go by so fast that the brain can't keep up. That's part of what makes listening to fugues fun, though. In the process of listening to a fugue, your mind jumps from voice to voice, picking out snippets of melody here and there. Even if you don't understand the mechanics of how these subjects and countersubjects are laid against each other, you can still enjoy the thrill of having dazzling counterpoint wrapped around your head. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with someone you love. If you want to contact me or find more about me, you can visit my website at davidkahnmusic.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-K-A-H-N-M-U-S-I-C dot com. Thanks for listening.